As we begin this morning, I'm going to ask you a question. I know it's always dangerous to let the group talk <laughs> because sometimes it goes in directions that you don't want it to go. But I'm going to ask you a question, and I want just an honest first thing that enters your mind answer. What makes you angry? Kentucky wins. Kentucky wins. <laughs> it was a very stressful game yesterday. What else makes you angry? People, traffic, bad attitudes, taxes, child molesters, people who don't do their jobs. And I got a second on that one. Okay, so you get the jest. There's, there's things in life that makes us angry. Is it a sin to get angry? I hear yes and I hear no. They're both right. Both, both are right. A couple of scriptures. Colossians 3.8. But now you also put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Colossians 3.21. Provoke not your children to anger. Titus 1.7. When giving the qualifications of an elder. Titus says an overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed. Not soon angered. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So you can see there's plenty of scriptures that describe anger as a sin that we need to try to put off, to get rid of. But there's also scriptures on the other side of that. Chapter 4 of Ephesians that we quoted a second ago, the verse before it says, Be angry and yet do not sin. So we have the ability to be angry and don't sin. This makes it clear it's possible to be angry and not sin. One of the things we're going to look at this morning is actually a passage in John. And it deals with this issue of anger as Jesus displayed his anger. It's John chapter 2, if you want to be turning there. Some people call this anger that Jesus expressed righteous indignation. So one of the lessons we're going to talk about today is what makes God angry. It also talks about Jesus' authority in this passage. So I've entitled the lesson, Jesus Displays His Anger and His Authority. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25 is what we're going to be looking at. John chapter 2. And I will begin reading in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. 
the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now the way I'm going to approach this passage is in four points. I broke it down to the appearance of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and then the application. So we begin with the appearance. When I say appearance, I am referring to what the scene was like as Jesus enters into this picture. Now, this is Palm Sunday, and one of the first things Jesus did after riding the young donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday was to go to the temple. That's kind of status of what he would normally do. There's an account in the other Gospels of something similar to what happened here that happened on Palm Sunday. But the account we're going to look at was similar, but it was at the beginning of his public ministry. Um, if you look in your Bibles, you see in the miracle at Cana was done right before this, where he turned the water into wine at the wedding. And it was done in a small, rather obscure town, mainly in front of friends and family. It doesn't even seem that when he did that first miracle that many people even knew what had happened. In fact, in Jesus' own words, he told his mother that his hour had not yet come. But as we're going to see, there is a change now taking place as Jesus starts revealing his true nature in front of thousands of people, including the religious leaders. Verse 12 tells us that after he had done this miracle, that he went down to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a very important city on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. When we were in Israel in November, we were all around this area. It was the scene of many miracles, including the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, a paralyzed man, the nobleman's son. Many of Jesus' disciples came from this area. Simon, Andrew, James, John, Matthew, all were from this area. This was kind of the center of Jesus' ministry was from Capernaum. But it's interesting that not many people believed from the area. And if you remember in Matthew, Jesus pronounced a curse on the city of Capernaum and prophesied its ruin in Luke 10. As a side note, there's a couple other cities that were pronounced with a curse. Do you know who that, what they were? Bethsaida. And Chorazin. Now, when we were driving around the bus, our Kenny used to point those places out, that then there's nothing there. They're, they were destroyed. Verse 13 tells us, after a few days, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he went there because the pa Passover was near. Jesus observed all the, the religious festivals, the Passover, of course, being the first and most important feast. And of course, it represented the time in the Jewish person's life where they were in bondage and they had been delivered from Pharaoh and they had spread the lamb's blood above the doorpost to be able to, that the death would pass over their firstborn son. So this was a very important event 
in the Jewish family. Passover was celebrated every year on the 14th day of Nisan, which is in March or April. Now remember, again, up until this time, Jesus was not very well known. This was his first real exposure, you know, at, on a large scale. Think about how many people would have been in Jerusalem. The normal population of Jerusalem at the time, historians tell us, was maybe around forty or 50,000 people. But on the event of Passover, as all the pilgrims came into town, some estimate that it might have been two or 300,000 people in the city. And I, I kind of like to think of you know something that's going on in a town where it brings in crowds of people. And, of course, we live in a tourist town. You think about spring break at Clearwater Beach. I don't, we, my wife and I try not to go to the beach because sometimes it can take you an hour just to drive out there. So it's a, you know, lots of people coming in. And you think about, though, who likes all these crowds of people? The merchants. You know, on Colorado Beach, the hotels, the restaurants, the street vendors, all those people, you know, the shops, they all like that. The same thing went on in Jerusalem during this time. Anytime there's a large event, there's going to be entrepreneurs there. And the same thing was happening. In Jerusalem during the Passover, all these people meant big business for the Jerusalem-based businesses. And unfortunately, some of that attitude had crept into the temple itself. Verse 14 tells that a Jesus, that as he found in the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So as I read this and I start thinking about meditating on the words of the scriptures, it helped me to put into perspective again a little bit about the temple. I don't know if your Bibles have pictures or if you go on the Internet and look at pictures of the temple. It's interesting to get a view of that in your mind. As Jesus walked into the setting of the temple, um, we were in, when we were in Israel, there was a place called the Temple Institute that actually is putting together all the, the stuff in the temple, so that when it's rebuilt, they will have all the, the elements that they need to begin the sacrificial worship and all that. It's really interesting. And we had some diagrams of what the temple was like. And it's really interesting. The temple that we're talking about here was the, was the one that Herod, they call it Herod's temple or the Herodian temple. It was the one that he had kind of rebuilt and expanded, made it bigger than the other two. According to historians, it was the size of 45 football fields. So it gives you a picture of how big it was. It was. That's about 35 acres in size. When you walked in, you came into a large courtyard that was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that was the biggest area of the temple as you walked in. And you get the picture of this great big open area with columns on the side and roofs. And uh, I think one area in the back was called Solomon's Fortress. Uh, it was like a patio with big columns. And then above it, you've got flat roofs where people could stand and overlook. And so you get this picture in your mind of this great big courtyard. That's the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come into this area pretty much. It was surrounded by, like I said, all these big large walls and columns. There were other buildings, different areas where the temple police, other specialized areas within this area. Then the, Gen the, the Jew Jewish women could move beyond this into the court of women. So even the Jewish women were more important than the Gentile man, which is unusual in the Middle, Middle East. But this was the farthest, most point they could go. Even the Gentile men couldn't go in there. Within this area, there were special chambers where a cleansed leper would go to show themselves to the priests. There was a chamber to store oil, a room to store wood for the sacrifices. 
On past this area, you would enter through what some say is the gate of beautiful that's mentioned in Acts 3.2 where Peter and John were going to pray, came upon the lame man and healed him, and into the more important part of the temple where the sacrifices would be made. And this area was a special place for the Jewish men. There was a special place for the priests. There were special chambers for the Sanhedrin, special altars. Most important part of the temple, of course, was the Holy of Holies in the centermost Rising above the rest of it was the Holy of Holies. This was the place where God's residence resided. It's where the annual sacrifices were made, where the priest would go through and he would go beyond the veil, rope tied to him so that if something happened, they could pull him out. Nobody else was allowed to enter there. This is the center of the Jewish family's religion. This is their life. This is where they pilgrimage them here every year. So you get that picture of that in your mind. And it was a beautiful place. Um, Josephus talks about all the gold and stuff that was used in the building. They've uncovered stones weighing hundreds of tons that we question if even our cranes might have trouble lifting them. And you try to get this idea of how they even were able to construct this magnificent place. So this is the picture in your mind as Jesus walks in. And you see that these pilgrims have traveled a long way. They come in here with their money to buy the sacrifices, the animals to be used for sacrifices. And, you you know, they could have brought their own animals. Some of them may have. But you think about the fact that they had the priest had to claim it was unblemished. So a lot of them didn't want to take the chance on bringing their own animals. And then the priest saying, oh, that's not good enough. They were kind of at their mercy. They had to, to basically come and then buy the animals. So that created a market or a business place for these people that were selling the animals. They had to have the, the temple tax. They had to pay it. Every Jewish man that was 20 years old or older had to pay this temple tax. The problem was their local currencies were not acceptable. They might have had Caesar's picture on it or it didn't have a pure enough gold content. So you had these money changers here then who now had a business of trans, you know, taking that money and exchanging it for the proper money. And they... They, they said that they were paying absorbent tax or exchange rates. Um, and the historical historians think that they might have been paying as much as 12.5% interest. And I thought that was, well, that doesn't sound like that's high. Our uh, interest is 29% on some of our credit cards and our Amscot. That's kind of, side note, it kind of makes you think, well, maybe we got some usury going on. But they had a, didn't have a choice. We have a choice whether we want to use the credit card debt or not. They were kind of locked in. They had a monopoly going on here, and they had to exchange it, and they pretty much had to do whatever they were asking. Most commentaries believe that this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, in the first area, the big open area. So you see under these big areas, you see the tables all set up and the vendors. It kind of reminds you of like a marketplace. If you've ever been on a cruise to like Cozumel or somewhere and you go through one of these crazy marketplaces where there's animals and food and vendors and they're all hollering at you to come here and buy this from me and shop here. I get that kind of picture going on. Um, Noisy, busy, smelly. And then you had these money changers and tables and coin boxes set all up to, to exchange. This is where Jesus appears. This is the appearance of Jesus. This is the scene in which he arrives. Verse 15 through 17 is where Jesus displays his anger. It says, He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So Jesus entering into this area was angered. And he, he got visibly upset with what was going on. He sees this house of worship turned into a place of business. And he makes a whip out of the cords, probably from the cords that were tying up the animals, that they were using to tie the animals up. He proceeds to drive out all the people selling the animals as well as the animals themselves. He turns over the tables. I get this picture of him just going from table to table and just turning them over, coins clanking to the ground, people scurrying to pick them up. And it was just kind of a zoo, as it were, as he as he did this. It happened so quickly. There's no hint of opposition. Verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for the house will consume me. Jesus was overtaken with a burning desire to cleanse the temple, to purify his father's house, as he put it. Several years later, as I said, he would do it again. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us a similar account during the last week of Jesus' life. Some try to say it was the same story, but I don't see that that's got much credibility. There are no real good arguments to make me think that John takes this out of context. I believe that it was happened at the beginning of his ministry and it happened again at the end of his ministry. It also shows us how important it was if Jesus did this twice. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. They had just witnessed a compassionate Jesus save an embarrassing moment at a wedding. He had just kind of silently and quietly done this miracle at a wedding in front of friends and family. And now, in front of all the religious leaders, hundreds of thousands of people, he displays some anger and zeal for his father's house. Some of the commentaries made a statement about how this may have had an impact on the disciples' view of Jesus as an earthly king because they were expecting the coming Messiah to lead a an earthly kingdom. And this kind of played into that possibly because they just saw a bold, courageous man kind of just go through the temple and cleanse it. And it took a lot of courage to do that. So this, these verses show that we witnessed the anger of Jesus. We're going to talk more about this. I'm kind of just going through the story and then we're going to get to the application at the end. We'll talk more about this, Jesus' anger at the end. The authority of Jesus now comes into play. Verse 18 says, The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? So it didn't say who exactly, but it says some people began to question Jesus. They were probably members of the Sanhedrin or the temple police who were responsible for the temple area. I thought it was interesting that they didn't, they didn't arrest him. They didn't even question why he had done it. They just question, who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority to say this was wrong? I think they were knew, knew they were in the wrong. Their question wasn't, who says transacting business in the temple is wrong? The question is, who gives you the right to say that? Who gives you the, the authority to decide whether this kind of activity goes on? I think they had a guilty conscience. I think that's why they didn't fight back. They just packed up and they left the temple might sound a little bit strange, but it really wasn't. They might have been thinking that he was a prophet like John the Baptist. You know, They might have thought he was like the Old Testament prophets that they had heard about all their life. And they demanded a sign to prove. He, did, you know, give us a sign that you have the right to do this. And we know over several 
over the, the course of the next chapters and stuff that we're going to see that they wanted signs several times in the history of dealing with Jesus. They wanted miracles, but even when they got them, they still didn't believe, did they? I love Jesus' response. Who gives you the authority? What did he say? He didn't say, God gives me the authority. I'm the son of God. He just said, destroy the temple, verse 19, destroy the temple in three days, I will raise it up. It's obvious from their response they had no idea what he was talking about. Their response in verse 20 says it took 46 years to build the temple. And in fact, it actually wasn't even completely built. It was still a work in progress. It took 46 years. We're still not done. And you're going to raise it up in three days. If it weren't for the next verse, we'd probably still be debating what Jesus meant by it. But John makes it clear in verse 21. It says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Verses 23 to 25 tell us that after Jesus, this, that Jesus stayed in Jerusalem for a few more days for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that immediately followed the Passover, and he did many more signs or miracles, maybe healings. We aren't sure. But because of these signs, Scripture tells us that many believe. Verse 24 is very interesting because it tells us that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. The word for entrusting is the same root word as the word believed. You could have actually translated it, Jesus did not believe in their belief. This makes good sense when you read the rest of the verse for it says, for he knew all men, he knew what was in man. Many people evidently saw the miracles and were amazed at them. They probably were believing in him as Messiah, the coming king, but the verse makes it clear it was not a saving faith. They were not trusting in Jesus for salvation. They were not repenting, turning from sin to Christ. Reminds me of the verse in James 2 that says, even the demons believe and shudder. So it's not about just believing. We've seen this passage, the appearance of Jesus, the anger of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. Now the most important part, the application. What can we learn from the passage to apply to our daily life? And that's where I spent... A lot of my time in developing this lesson was because the application is so vast. I had to narrow it down to seven applications that I see from this. And the first and the obvious one is, is our anger aligned with Jesus' anger? As I asked you at the beginning of the class, what was the things that make you angry? Some were humorous. Some were probably honest. And some, hopefully, were withheld because we don't want to embarrass ourselves and our family members. But what makes us angry, if we're all honest, a lot of times it's not righteous indignation. It's things that derive from our own selfishness and pride. Jesus was angry over protecting the honor of his Father. Think about the Old Testament and how often the anger, the wrath of the Lord was mentioned. It's mentioned more than a lot of topics in the Bible. I wrote down just a couple. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Why does God have indignation every day? Because there's sin going on every day and he gets angry at sin. The New Testament talks about God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness in Romans chapter 1. I wrote down a quote, and I don't know who wrote it. It says, we need to get angry over sin 
not get sin, not sin by getting angry. We need to get angry over sin, not sin by getting angry. So we need to make sure our anger is aligned with the righteous anger of the Lord, not sinful anger born out of pride and selfishness. I have to admit, my wife would attest to it, that when we were early in our marriage that I probably had an anger issues. Um, and I look back on it, and I think it can be a sign of how you spiritually mature, is how you view anger. Now what gets me angry, not all the time, but most of the time, is totally different things. It's things like seeing sin reign in people's lives. It's seeing the evil things that go on in the world that, that makes me angry. It makes me angry that you know our Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted like never before. But when I was first married, I got angry over selfish reasons and much more immature reasons. That's not aligning my anger with the anger of the Lord. The second point of application that I see from this passage is what is our burning desire in life? Verse 17 said that Jesus had a zeal for his, you know, he quoted that scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. He had a zeal for his father's house. The word zeal means a consuming passion. Do we have a consuming passion for the things of God? Many people have a zeal for their work. Many people have a zeal for their hobbies. Many have people of zeal for their families, which is even a good thing. But it reminds us that our zeal should be for the things of God. As I was doing this lesson originally, I had a phone call from someone who was displaying a zeal for sports. He was consumed with his son and traveling and playing basketball and they were going to tournaments on the weekend and he was keeping stats and taking videos and he had this just this zeal for this. I mean, it was, it was intense passion for his son and his basketball and, and the things that made that up. He was a perfectionist and he just poured everything into it. And that in itself is not wrong, but when those things take our passion and our zeal and the things of God are more just mundane and we just are apathetic to them, that's not, that's not right. The quote in verse 17 comes from Psalm 69.9. When I looked up the root word that was translated zeal, I found that the actual word used was sometimes translated jealously. Now, if you were here two weeks ago and I did a quick devotion on the attribute of God, jealousy, this is the same word, and it comes up again that you could have translated this passage, jealousy for the house will consume me. So I, I thought about that a little bit, and I thought, well, it's two, two times in a row this word jealousy thing's coming up. Is God trying to talk to me, or maybe he's trying to talk to some of you? But there's repetition coming up here that, that we should be zealous for the things of the Lord. Jesus was standing in the defense of his father for his holiness and his name. He wanted nothing to come between the people and their God. What is my burning desire in life? Kept coming back up as I, I read through this. What's my burning desire in life? This whole idea of zeal when looked at from the point of jealousy also relates to the anger just displayed. We are told many times in scripture that God is a jealous God. That he doesn't want anything placed before him that where is our zeal is it for the things of the lord or the things of the earth the third point of application that i came away with was that without godly zeal we become apathetic towards sin 
As I thought about the sin as, as Jesus came into the temple, I was struck by the indifference of the people. Normally when I read that passage, I think about the leaders and the, you know, the Jewish leaders and the people that were taking advantage of the situation. But where were all the people that were participating? Where, did anybody rise up and help Jesus cleanse the temple? Everybody just kind of stood back and watched. And I thought about that because we want to blame the preachers. We want to blame the church leaders. We want to blame the country's leaders. We want to always blame the leaders. Did the people not have a part of this? I think when you don't have that godly zeal that Jesus displayed, you become apathetic to sin and you become lukewarm might be another word that we could use. Thousands of pilgrims who were there and were participating. There's no mention of them complaining. No mention that anyone saw anything wrong. No mention of anybody helping Jesus. And we've seen that throughout history when you think about what's gone on in the church today. You know, and the apathetic nature of many churches and the things of righteousness. We've allowed, you know, things to creep into the church that we all know is wrong. But the people have participated by allowing that to happen. Jesus was acting as a reformer, not a social reformer, but a spiritual reformer, purifying and cleansing the temple. We need to make sure we maintain a zeal for the Lord, which brings us to the fourth point that I got came away with. Zeal produces action. Jesus didn't just experience this emotion and upon seeing what was going on, he didn't go sit in the corner some way and Tell his disciples and sulk and say, look what's going on here. Look at how horrible this situation is. His zeal led to action. If we are zealous about something, it will lead to action. It might look differently in different situations, but I think it will be born out of our actions. A person that is zealous to know God will pray. A Christian who is zealous to worship God won't sit in church service and not move their lips they will sing praises to the lord a person that is zealous to serve god will seek out ministry opportunities in this context jesus zeal is not a passive emotion and i don't think ours should be either it reminds me of james word in his letter where he says faith without works is dead show me your faith and i will show you my works that's a paraphrase from james chapter 2 the fifth application that I came away with is that Jesus is the supreme authority. We in America like to talk about freedom and don't like to think about being in subjection. We are proud to not be under dictator or king, but the Bible teaches there is a chain of command in the home. It's with the husband and the church. It's with the elders. Ultimately, the supreme authority being Jesus Christ. By his death and resurrection, he demonstrated his authority. When they asked him by what authority he went to a kind of a vague reference to that they would remember it later of his resurrection. Upon his death, the earthly temple was destroyed. The veil in the sea, not the destroyed, but the veil was ripped in two. When you think about that earthquake and the veil being ripped in two, the place of God's presence on the earth was representative to gone away. And now we have that high priest Jesus that we can go directly to. It was his resurrection that accomplished that. His death and resurrection. Men used to have to go through a priest, now only through Christ. 
By his resurrection, he proves his authority over all other false religions. What are some false religions and their founders? Who's Mormonism? Joseph Smith. Dead. Who else? Scientology. J.L. Hubbard. Dead. Buddha. Dead. Muhammad. Dead. They're all dead. Jesus Christ resurrected and is alive today. That's what we'll be celebrating next Sunday. That's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. That is the authority that Christ was talking about. He is the only true God. He proves that by his resurrection. And he is the supreme authority. Why then do people not want to adhere to, to talk about, to, you know, to basically kind of talk, you know, down the Bible and his word? That's, you know, this is the only real authority that we have is, is Christ, his words, and what he did. All other religions have nothing real to stand on. So we should hold his word in such high regard. The sixth point I came away with was scripture memory is profitable. How did you come up with this one? Well, verse 17 says that the disciples remembered, and then John quotes the passage from 69.9, Psalm 69.9, that's, that talks about that zeal of his father's house. It brought about a memory that they had memorized from Scripture. They knew the words. So Scripture memory can play a very important part in our growth as Christians. The Holy Spirit brings forth passages we've committed to memory just at the right time to help us. Don't you think the disciples were real encouraged when they later, they didn't understand everything right then, but later, after he had resurrected, and then they remembered these scriptures that brought back things that Jesus said and how they must have encouraged them. I thought about Jesus' testing in the wilderness. How did he respond to Satan every time? He quoted the, the words of scripture. So it's very important. Scripture memory can play a very important part of our life. I know early in my Christian life I was gung-ho on memorizing scripture. But as I matured, got busy with life and kids, I kind of went down a path of not doing that as regularly. A few years ago, a prayer partner and I kind of challenged ourselves to start memorizing scriptures again. And I started really trying to put that back into practice. And I memorized Romans chapter 8 and some other great passages. And it's amazing then as you're going throughout your day and your work that things that will come into your mind that you never would have done before had you not had that scripture committed to memory. It can be a very important part of your life. And what does scripture memory help you to do besides encourage you? It keeps you from sin. You think of Psalm 119.11 that says, My words have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So it can come up at times to help us from falling into temptation. The seventh application the last application i got from this was that jesus knows our hearts in this passage jesus knew that those believing on his name were not believing on him as lord and savior it's always a humbling thought to me jesus knows everything that is inside of me he knows what i am thinking he knows every true motivation behind what i am thinking saying doing sometimes we can even deceive ourselves but we can't deceive Christ. 
Have you ever known someone who rationalized things away to the point where they believed something to be true that really was false? You see that a lot. That's called deceiving yourself. We can all be guilty of doing that. We may deceive ourselves, but we cannot deceive Jesus. I love Hebrews 4.12. I memorized it a long time ago, the one that talks about the Word being living and powerful and active. The verse after that, I didn't memorize at the time. I memorized it a few years later that talks about verse 13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the one whom we must give an account. And that word for open and laid bare is naked. And you think about that. All things are naked before Christ. Everything. That's sobering to me. He knows what is in man. He knew that those people that were claiming to believe in him, who were accepting him as Messiah and King, he knew in their hearts he wasn't believing in their belief because he knew it wasn't true, it wasn't, it wasn't saving faith, it wasn't repentant. They were deceiving themselves. And God knows that about us as well. I praise God that he never acts on assumptions. Think about all the things we do by assumption. We assume this about our employer or our spouse or whatever, and we make decisions. A lot of times they're educated assumptions, but God doesn't do anything by assumption because he knows everything. Everything that's going on with every person, God knows about it. He knows our likes, dislikes, our tendencies, our strengths, our weaknesses, our successes, our failures, our sins. He knows when we fail to act. He knows when we do, don't do, say, don't say, think, don't think. He knows everything about us. And I guess the, the end on the note that he knows all that and he still died for us. Isn't that an amazing fact? We'll end on that note. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for our time together. Father, we are thankful that Christ is our supreme example. We, may we model our lives after him. May we turn from sinful, prideful, selfish anger, Father, and yet we should have a burning desire for the things of God, for your holiness and righteousness. May it anger us to see sin prevail in our society. Father, may you help us to be the kind of people that are not apathetic, but have a zeal for you, your house, your righteousness, your holiness. Father, may we have a burning desire to do your will. May you keep us, Father, from sin. May you help us, even this day, to be more like your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>